tonight, friends, if your Bibles aren't open to it already, open to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And following the service today, we're going to give Shauna Lee the award for the longest reading ever in the history of St. George's. But what a great thing to sit under God's Word. You know, I could go on and on about that, but we have a lot to cover this morning, so let's jump right in. 1 Samuel chapter 17. The account of David and Goliath, perhaps one of the best-known moments in all of David's life. If you were raised in church, it's a story that you would have learned in Sunday school. Do you remember it from those days? It's captured in that Sunday school song, Only a boy named David. Know that one? Only a little sling. Only a boy named David. Five little stones. Oh, but he could pray and sing. I, I remember the song. The reason I, I find that song difficult, when I was a kid, I always thought they were singing, Only a boy, Ray David. And I was like, <laughs> mess the whole thing up. But um, one of the challenges with this account is we too often relegate it to only a Sunday school account. It's in other ways, this story has been sort of defanged and lost its teeth because we have inculcated it into our popular culture and into our everyday terminology to the point that anytime there's a battle that is against the odds, we refer to it as a David and Goliath challenge, right? Even Super Bowls sometimes are called, this one is going to be a real David and Goliath. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Seems like any time an underdog is pit against a giant and there are poor odds, we, just in this sort of pale, anemic way, take this account and try to apply it. But what we have here is so much more, and we're going to see that over the course of this sermon. Now again, um, here at St. George's, we would typically preach expositionally, verse by verse, in great detail. If we did that through narrative accounts, the sermons would stretch from Sunday morning till Wednesday afternoon. And so instead, in this series, we're going to be looking at this allegorically. And there are three things that I want us to pull from this, okay? Three specific things. The first one is we will examine the life of David. This is Israel's greatest king, the man after God's own heart. That's the first thing we're going to do. The second thing is we will glean practical lessons and instruction for our own life and our own walk with the Lord. We are going to learn from David's good moments and from his mistakes. So that's the second thing. First thing, we're going to learn about David. Second thing, we're going to take those principles and we're going to apply them to our life as an example and as an anti-example of how to walk with the Lord. But the third and most important thing that we are going to pull, as we look at the life of David, we are going to see Jesus. We are going to see him prefigured as our Christ, as our Messiah, as our King, as our Savior and Redeemer for all of his people. So that's the framework that we're going to bring to bear today on 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now, you remember that last week, we looked at the secret anointing of David. This was the moment where, after Saul had gone completely off the rails as Israel's first king, God rejects Saul, and God tells the prophet Samuel to go and anoint a new king. God sent Samuel to the household of Jesse, and Jesse parades out his seven best and brightest sons. And one after one, Samuel looks at each of them and says, nope, 
And after seven of them have been brought by, Samuel says to Jesse, do you not have one more? You remember how it went. Jesse said, well, we do have the youngest one, but you know, he's just out tending the sheep. And Samuel said, bring him to me. And so in this secret moment, hidden from the world stage, Samuel anoints David as the next king of Israel. This week, we see David's arrival on the scene, as it were. We're going to see David step onto the national and even international stage, to use today's terminology. If you want to think about these two, ver- these two chapters, 1 Samuel 16 and 1 Samuel 17, think about them this way. In 1 Samuel 16, God chooses David. In 1 Samuel 17, David chooses God. David, in this encounter, will choose faithfulness to the Lord God by choosing faith over fear. And you know, in this progression, we see a picture of our own salvation. The consistent witness of Scripture is that God chooses his own in Christ from before the foundation of the world, and then we respond after we are granted the faith to believe, we then choose God in Jesus Christ. And so already we're beginning to see a prefiguring of our salvation, right? God chooses David in 1 Samuel 16. David responds by choosing God in 1 Samuel 17. We're reminded in this that God's action in salvation always precedes our own. I want to look into the passage right now and get into the weeds, as it were. Um, The first thing that we're going to see is the question where this takes place. Look at chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. Say it with confidence. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other and there was a valley in between them. So if you're a visual person like I am, you can actually begin to picture this scene. The two armies encamped on high ground with a valley in between them. If you were making the uh, feature film of this, you might enlist someone like Ridley Scott to put together the screenplay, because a big battle is about to ensue. But there's something so much deeper. In these three verses, when we see recorded in God's word where this takes place, it's more than just setting the battle scene. It's reminding us that this is a battle for the very land that God promised and gave to his people. If you remember back in the account of Moses, when Moses sent the spies, do you remember that? 
Moses sent Joshua, Caleb, and the ten spies into the land of promise. And what report did those spies bring back? Because they went into this very land. Do you remember what report they brought back? Yeah, that's right. Ten of the spies said, the land may be beautiful, but it's filled with what? Giants. That's right. Joshua and Caleb, the faithful ones, said, oh, but it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and the Lord God will give it to us. This is the land filled with giants. That's where. Verses 4 to 7, who? The first thing is where. The second question is who? Verse 4, and there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Well, this scene is starting to take shape, and the question who is answered first by the fact that he is a Philistine. Now, in today's politically correct world, you know, you're not allowed to say things like this. However, um, whenever you read Philistine in the Old Testament, you have to imagine enemy of God. People who are set against the people of God and set against the Lord God himself. These were the people who were inhabiting that land of promise when God promised it to his people and gave it to them. These were wicked, idolatrous, evil, child-sacrificing people. That's what a Philistine is. An enemy of the Lord God and of his people. Well, that's the first thing about who this guy is. He's a Philistine. The second thing is, not only is he a Philistine, but he's a big one, <laughs> right? He's a giant from Gath. Now, you could go down a whole rabbit hole on this one. We won't take time to do it. Suffice it to say, giants in the land of Gath were most likely descendants of the Nephilim from Genesis 6, those giants at the time of the flood. Uh, Gath was where... The Anakites lived. I'm not going to take time to unpack all the genealogy of Goliath of Gath. All I want you to see is that in this giant Philistine named Goliath of Gath, demonic, satanic evil took flesh. It was personified. This Philistine, Goliath of Gath, stands in opposition to God and to his people, and he is imposing in every way. Look at verse 4. He's over six cubits tall. What the heck is a cubit? Well, he's about nine feet tall. Man, you think Brian's tall. This guy towered over Brian. Verse 5. He was not only enormous, but he was outfitted. He had a helmet of bronze. He had a coat of heavy armor. Verse 6, his legs were protected. He even had an enormous javelin and spear on his back. The spear was so big that the head alone weighed 15 pounds. An imposing character. Oh, and it tells us also in verse 7, that he had a shield bearer too. Like it wasn't enough that he was enormous and well equipped. He also had a Robin to his Batman. Okay, so that's where. That's who. 
And then verses 8 to 10, what? What was the matter? Well, in verses 8 to 9, Goliath stands up and he appeals to what was a custom of the day, right? They had this custom back then that if two armies were going to battle, they could each choose a champion to fight on behalf of their people. And so they could spare all kinds of bloodshed. Rather than having hundreds, maybe even thousands of men die in a battlefield, they could appeal to this, and then one champion would be selected from one army, another champion would be selected from the other army, they would battle each other, whoever won, his people group were the victors, that's what's happening. This idea of representative champion is a really important part of this account, so so just tuck that one away for a moment. Verse 10, remember this is what is the matter. And this Philistine not only appeals to this, but he says, verse 10, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Goliath is calling them out. He's thumbing his nose. He's spitting on the people of God, and on the God of Israel. That's the issue. So when we read through this account of David and Goliath, friend, never forget that there exists an enemy who rages against the Lord God and against his people. It was true back on that day in the valley of Soko. And it's equally true today, make no mistake. Verse 11. The Philistine champion stands bold and calls out anyone, right? He says, send me anyone. I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man, anyone, that will fight. Who should have risen up to fight him? That's right, Saul. Saul should have risen up. He should have risen up as the one who chose faith over fear and would not tolerate defiance from a Philistine. But verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul should have risen up. But instead, he was just like all the rest of Israel, and he shrunk away. Greatly afraid and dismayed along with everyone else. Now, friends, don't move too quickly past this point. This will be the downfall of many great men of God throughout the history of God's people. That moment when they aren't doing what they were supposed to be doing when they were supposed to be doing it. Well, let's make it very personal and painful this morning and uncomfortable. This is not only the downfall of many of God's people throughout the history of God's story, this is the downfall of many Christian homes. Men who aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing when they're supposed to be doing it. 
fearful passivity and apathy. Not leading your home in godliness, but shrinking back from the enemy. Saul should have risen up, but he didn't. You say, well, you know, doing what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to be doing it, R.D., that sounds far too simple. And I would suggest it is simple in theory, it is hard in practice. Like most things, the mechanics are easy enough. The discipline is what makes it hard. We're going to later on see in 2 Samuel chapter 11 in the account of David and Bathsheba that this was the same pit that David fell into. This is what led to his great sin. We're going to be told in 2 Samuel 11 that it was the spring of the year, the time of the king, that the kings went out to war. But David stayed home. And that's when he saw Bathsheba and everything devolved from there. A sermon for another day. You see, faithlessness that leads to sin and failure often comes in the form of inaction, sitting on your hands, simply not doing what you're supposed to be doing. In today's account, evil has a human face. His name is Goliath. He's rising up against the Lord and his people. He says, is there anyone brave enough in your camp? Saul should have stepped up. Saul should have felt that steel in his backbone and said, Getty up, let's go. But he didn't. And of course he didn't. Saul had several chapters ago already rejected the Lord God and the Lord God had already rejected Saul it was just taking time to work out well Christian man in particular perhaps there is an enemy an evil one standing at the valley of your home Will you do what you ought to do and lead your home in godliness or will you shrink back in fear? The encouragement here is to do what you're supposed to do, to set your mind and your will to do it. You know, something ought to be said about personal discipline, doing the very things that you don't want to do, exerting your will to overcome your own fear Exerting your own will to overcome your own faithfulness, even your own complacency and your own apathy. It's a cautionary object lesson for us all. Saul sits on his hands. But you know, it's so much more than that. Verse 12. Saul is dismayed and greatly afraid. He doesn't rise to the occasion. But verse 12, what does it say? Now, David. See, faithless, faltering Israel is never without a champion. In this moment of weakness and faithlessness and fear, Israel has David. Now, when you and I are honest with ourselves, when we look in the mirror, 
No matter how resilient, no matter how conscientious, no matter how strong or how disciplined, no matter how faithful we think we are, there are moments when in the face of Goliath, we, like Israel and Saul, stumble and fail. We whiff when faced with evil. And here's the gospel. You have a champion. You have a David who fights on your behalf. Saul sits on his hand, verse 12, now David. Do you see that in the text? And so as we begin to see this, it's peeling back the layers from this account. This account is not just an example of what to do when the odds are stacked against you. Goliath doesn't simply represent some insurmountable challenge or daunting task. Let me say it even more clearly. You are not David. If anything, in this account, you're Israel. This is not the story of how you overcome hardship. In this account, Goliath prefigures Satan and David prefigures Jesus Christ. Verses 12 to 30 are going to tell us more about David. He is Israel's champion substitute. I won't take time to go through it in detail right now. Suffice it to say that David is going to show us the one who trusts God, who obeys God and faces off with evil, Goliath of Gath. David, in his faithfulness in this account, will show us the one who is perfectly faithful and whose trust in the Father led him to perfect obedience, obedience that slayed not Goliath, but Satan on a cross. Let me just pull a few key things out of this big chunk of verses. Look at verses 12 to 15. In verses 12 to 15, we see a picture of David um, again prefiguring Jesus. What's David doing in verses 12 to 15? He's feeding the sheep and looking after his brothers. <laughs> Isn't that Jesus? In verse 16, we see how evil plays its hand. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Relentless taunting. That's all evil can do. Brash. Verse 20. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. We see that David prefigures Jesus because he obeys his father. It's one of the most notable things about David. We're also told the same thing about Jesus. In Philippians 2, Paul cites a hymn, and he says of Jesus, he says that he was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him. Obedient to the Father. 
David's obedience to Jesse prefigures Jesus' obedience to the Father because Jesus also says things like, I have not come to do my own will, but the will of my Father. Jesus, who in Gethsemane prays to the Father as a son would to his Father and says, Father, if there's any other way, but not my will, but thy will. David does as his father commanded him. Verses 23 to 28. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. David heard him this time. The people are fearful and failing. Now let me, let me make this clear again. If you are looking for yourself in this account, you and I are Israel. Fearful and failing. Look at verse 26 to 27. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should stand and defy the armies of the living God? David hears the taunting of the evil one and he says, enough. That's it. Here's the point. You might look at the world around us and feel like evil has been given free reign. But make no mistake, the Lord God will not allow evil to go on forever. The Lord God will not allow the wicked to taunt him forever. Are there moments in your lives today where the evil one feels like he is taunting you and defying the Lord and his people? What should you do? Should you just relentlessly soak it? <laughs> just take it? Well, friends, sometimes faithfulness demands a backbone of steel. David rises up and says, enough. When Saul failed, when Israel failed, David rose up indignant. He's not going to abide the slander of his God forever. Verse 28. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. Okay, in, in, in this chunk, verses 28 to 29, Eliab, David's oldest brother, questions David's motives. Right? He says, you just came to try to capitalize on this moment. And so in this moment with Eliab, we see why Samuel, led by the Lord God, passed over Eliab, Right? Because we're told that man may look on the outer appearance, but the Lord God looks on the heart. And Eliab has shown what was in his heart. He had the heart of a chicken. But David had the heart of a lion. 
When we say that David had the heart of a lion, I'm not just talking about courage. I'm talking about trust. You know, I do think that there's a preachable point here in Eliab. Eliab, um, who is not willing to do the risky thing, he's not willing to chance the right thing. Instead, he just wants to criticize the guy who is willing to trust God and take a chance, right? And so we see the typical pattern of the weak person. Not willing to take the risk or the chance for the Lord God, but instead more than ready to bring criticism to bear on those who would take a step of faithfulness. It's a cheap gift to come along and criticize another. Verses 31 to 37. One of the greatest, I think, moments captured in Scripture. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, now you got a picture, okay? Young David standing before the first king of Israel, Saul. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You aren't able to go and fight against this Philistine, for you're just a little youth. He's been a man of war from his youth. Verse 34, but David said to Saul, he's like, Saul, you don't even know. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, all right, buddy, buckle up, go and the Lord be with you. It doesn't really sound sincere, does it? It more sounds like dismissive. Have at him, bud. You want to get it? All right. It's your problem now. Lord be with you. David says, no worries, I'll go. You guys are faithless and fearful, David says, but I'll do it. I'll rise up and be your champion. And see, there are two things in this passage that give David the courage to face Goliath. And the same are true for us today. The first one is a trust in the Lord. What David tells Saul just points everything back to the Lord God. He says, I'm not going to go out and fight Goliath on my own strength. I'm going to do so in the power of the Lord. And the second thing that brings David courage here is that he is rightly remembering all the times that the Lord provided for him and protected him and delivered him in the past. Christian man or woman, maybe that's a word for you today. You feel like you are up against it. You're fearful. 
Remember that the Lord God is in control. And take a moment to just reflect on all the times where God has come through for you in the past. All the times that he's delivered you from the jaw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. He is faithful. He will do it. And so we read this passage sort of holding on to two things at the same time. The first one is that in some sense and to some degree, it is instructive for how we live our faith, right? We look to David and we see an example. But in the second place, that it is more than just an example. If, if it was only an example, we'd crush under the weight of it because we'd say, well, we can never live up to that kind of faithfulness. But the second thing that we hold at the same time is that this account is more than an example. It shows us our Jesus, our champion substitute. See, when our faith fails, Jesus comes alongside us and says, verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant has already slain the Philistine. Verses 38 to 40. So Saul says, okay, buddy boy, you want to do it? Have at it, you know. Your problem, not mine. He says, but if you're going to do it, you should probably at least put on my armor. That's what happens in verses 38 to 40. But when we read the account, we discover quickly that Saul's armor doesn't fit David. Okay, this is a really, really important allegorical point. The first thing that I want you to see from this narrative Saul's armor does not fit David. Make no mistake, David is nothing like Saul. It doesn't fit. See, Saul was one who trusted in the very same things that made Goliath strong. He trusted in armor, but David trusts in the Lord. Saul told David to put on his armor, and David refused it. He says, it doesn't fit me. It's not who I am. And here's the point. Far too often in our lives when we go out to battle the evil one, we've lost before we even begin because we concede the terms of the battle. We enter into the battle on the evil one's terms. Let me say it a different way. We try to go in with the same armor that Goliath has on. Um, we try to conquer Goliath by being better at being Goliath. Okay? Goliath comes to the battle and he's wearing armor and has spears and he has swords and he has shields and he has helmets. And, and we sometimes would try to respond by saying, well, if I'm going to fight Goliath, then I need to have all those same things that Goliath has, fight him on those terms, only better than what he has. That's what I really need. We try to defeat Satan by being a better Satan. Goliath used his armor and his taunts and his bravado. He leaned on his physical might. David is going to face off against him 
bearing nothing more than the instruments and implements of a shepherd. No sword, no armor, just a staff and a sling and smooth stones from the brook. Well, that may seem insane, right? Like, why, why would he do that? I think if you read the account closely, the answer is, well, why wouldn't he do that? He's just told Saul that with a sling and with a staff, he has defeated lions and bears. He knows that you do not enter into the fray against the enemy on the enemy's terms. You fight differently. David says, I don't need Saul's armor to fight against Goliath. It's like, I don't even know how to use them. I've never tried them. David says, I have the Lord God. And he's defeated lions and he's defeated bears. And he will defeat Goliath. Here's the preachable point. Christian man or woman reject worldly weapons and secular terms of battle when fighting against the evil one of your soul. Saul's armor doesn't fit David because David is not Saul. That's the first thing you take from this. The second thing you take from this, Saul's armor doesn't fit because when this battle unfolds, there will be no mistakes made. Goliath will fail, he will fall, and when he does, Saul is not going to get any of the glory. Not even Saul's armor will be engaged in defeating Goliath. When, when Goliath falls, Saul's not going to get the glory, his armor isn't going to get the glory, and not even David is going to get the glory, but the Lord God. You know, that's how God delivers his people. He doesn't use conventional methods or means. And he does it in that way so that he gets all of the glory. So that when he delivers us, we could never look back and say, yeah, it was like 90% God, but it was 10% my own cleverness, my own cunning, my own armor. That's how God delivered you in Jesus. Not in the obvious way by the sword, but by the cross. So that God's glory and his mercy would ring on through the ages. So Saul says, here, kid, um, if you're going out, use these. Use these worldly means. Use the same thing that the evil one uses. And at least my armor will be in the battle and I'll get some kind of residual glory. And David says, nope. Not going to happen. And so, friends, when the evil one stands before you, raging and boasting, accusing, blaspheming, threatening your very soul. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. That the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. David is going to cling to nothing but the promises of God. And so too should we. See, these promises of God to David, find their fulfillment in the better David, Jesus Christ. This Jesus who, while he was on the cross, 
He could have called down legions from heaven. He could have called down the host of our heavenly army. But that's not how he chose to do battle. He trusted in the Father's plan. And he embraced the cross with its shame. So friends, when you find that your faithfulness is flagging and fear is creeping in, remember that you have a champion. The faithful one. And he's done for you what you could never do. He's faced off against your Goliath, against Satan. He fought the evil one for you, armed with nothing but faithfulness and trust in the Father. Okay, climactic moment, verses 41 to 47. David stands before Goliath. Goliath expresses his disdain and his scorn. Look at verses 41 to 44. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David and the shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. He was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, What, am I a dog? You going to come out with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me. I'm going to rip you limb from limb. I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Verse 45, David responds. And he reminds Goliath, <laughs> that's not how this is going to work out. He said, you think you're fighting against me, but you're actually fighting against the Lord God. This Lord God whom you openly disdain and curse Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. The battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Friend, you've got to feel that moment. In verses 48 to 49, we're told that David prevailed. And this is a picture of your salvation and mine. David prevails over Goliath, and so all of Israel is saved. Talk about substitutionary atonement, right? The representative champion conquers Satan for all of his people. David defeats Goliath, and so all of Israel is spared. Jesus prevails over Satan, and you and I are saved by the faithfulness of another. Look at verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. 
See, Goliath is decapitated by his own sword, and we're reminded that often the wicked are destroyed by their own devices. That the very things that Satan and the satanic and the demonic set out to try to bring about your demise are the very things that are used to slice off their own head in the end. That's why Jesus instructed his disciples and said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. God doesn't save by the sword. He saves by the cross. Listen, friends, there are so many lessons that could be gleaned from this account of David and Goliath. There are truths that we could go on and on that ought to be embraced as best practices of faithfulness, things that we ought to point our life toward. There are Goliaths of Gath who stand before us every day, taunting us and seeking to destroy us, disdaining our God and cursing him, brashly brandishing their power as a threat to our own well-being. Part of this account is an encouragement to, like David, rise up and trust in the Lord. But make no mistake, as useful as that might be, it's not the point of this account. It's something even better. See, the point of this account is good news that is better than a pep talk. It's the gospel. The gospel that in these moments, whether it is Jesus Christ that we're reading about or David who prefigures Christ, we have more than just an example, we have an efficacious Savior who has saved us forever. He is an example, but he's more than that. And that's good news. We have a substitute champion. Having a substitute champion is something that I understand well. On Ellis Avenue in Nobleton, where I grew up, I was the youngest in the entire friend group, right? I was the little kid. All the kids were much older than me. Um, they were not only older, they were bigger and stronger and better athletes. And anytime we would play games, you know, we would pick teams. And I found myself this little tiny runt trying to play games with these big kids and trying to keep up. And sometimes I felt like I would be left out. You know, we would play superheroes, and people would call out the superhero that they wanted to be. Someone would say, I'm Spider-Man, I'm Superman, I'm Batman, and I'd be left with no superheroes left to claim. But my next-door neighbor, Jeff, who was actually the oldest kid in the friend group, he became my substitute champion. I remember him that day when we were choosing superheroes, you know, some 40-some years ago, saying everyone's chosen, and I was standing there forlorn. I'm like, well, I don't have a superhero. And he says, you're super nothing. And I was like, that's awesome. I'm super nothing. He was my substitute hero champion who fought on my behalf. Other times when we'd be playing road hockey, Jeff was the oldest, the biggest, and the strongest. I was the youngest and the littlest. Jeff was a great kid. He had a younger brother who was two years younger who was not. <laughs> and his younger brother used to peck on me relentlessly. And I remember one day when we were playing road hockey and his, Jeff's younger brother, Kevin, was like picking on me and just being merciless. 
And Jeff went over and thumped them. Just like put them down in the grass and lay the beats on them. I remember standing there going, well, I could have never done that. But I sure am thankful that I have a substitute champion who fought for me. Now, it's not a perfect metaphor because Jeff then got in trouble for picking on his brother, but you get my point. In this account, like in all of the gospel, we have both an example and an effective Savior who did what we couldn't do. We have a Jeff. We have a David. We have a Jesus. Christian man or woman, you have a champion. He is your substitute who cut off the head of Goliath, who crushed the head of the serpent, who has defeated sin, hell, death, and the devil for you. The battle belongs to him. Well, listen, we're not going to take time. This will be next week. Um, Verses 55 to 58 Saul is already threatened by David and his upcoming leadership. And he asks Abner, he says, who is this guy? Abner's the general. And they're like, I don't know, who is he? And David says, it's actually just me, remember? Jesse's son. Naomi, Ruth. Obed, Jesse, David all the way through to Jesus. You and I have a champion, and the battle belongs to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this cherished time in the week during the Lord's Day when we can come under your word together. Encourage our hearts with this gospel truth that while we can and ought to follow the example of David. While we can and ought to follow the example of Jesus, the only reason that we have any hope is because our enemy's already been defeated. Encourage our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.